welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. Thank you for joining me. For the first half or so of my time in ministry, people would often say, you're far too young to be a minister. Uh, Then one day they stop saying it. Oh, the trauma. Uh, But never mind, uh, because no one ever said, uh, you're not good enough to be a minister, or you're not righteous enough, uh, except maybe my cousins, but that's a story for another day. Um, you, you will recall that the sum of the ethical principles we learned at the supermarket was develop a moral character. We took the first three principles, do no harm, pursue the common good, treat others as you wish to be treated, and concluded that putting these in practice was at the heart of developing a moral character. We called it disposition, the persistent desire to act in a certain manner. So, as I said, I'd like to begin this discussion on character with a specific look at the leadership qualities we expect from ministers. There's a now ancient resource, late 90s, I suppose, uh, called Discerning the Call, a handbook to the discernment process people must undertake if they intend to become candidates for ministry. There's one section uh, focused on the call of gifts and a list of attributes the United Church deemed necessary for ordained and commissioned leaders. Uh, They are a deep spiritual life, personal integrity, self-knowledge, understanding of human behavior, intelligence, passion for justice, capacity for critical reflection, integration of self, capacity to be a lifelong learner. I'm going to pause here with a couple of questions. Uh, What would you add or subtract uh, from this list? That's the first question. Um, Next, are these for ministers only, or should we expect the same attributes from everyone in the church? Uh, Since you've taken my course in church history, I expect you already know the answer. Pause the tape if you wish. I highlight these attributes for a couple of reasons. Uh, First, no one arrives at seminary with a checkbox filled beside every item on the list. Some are intelligent but need to develop their understanding of human behavior. Some have a passion for justice but don't have enough self-knowledge, and so on. The purpose of theological education is to inform but also to develop, to develop an appropriate disposition for ministry. And and back to my second question, my somewhat loaded question, the answer is yes. The list is for all followers of the way. Uh, Jesus compared the kingdom of God to yeast in Luke 13, meaning that we citizens of the kingdom are meant to contribute to the growth of the whole, individuals, church, and society. And it begins with disposition. So, so here's the list again, just to underline the point. A deep spiritual life, personal integrity, self-knowledge, understanding of human behavior, intelligence, passion for justice, capacity for critical reflection, integration of self, capacity to be a lifelong learner. I want us to put on our judgment hats for a minute and think about the character traits that are common in our society. In compiling such a list, it soon becomes obvious that to discuss and cultivate Christian moral character is a countercultural endeavor. 
We stand with St. Paul, who said, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Actively seeking to discern the will of God for our lives is a profoundly countercultural act. And I wish I was wrong. But a few decades here on planet Earth has taught me that we are experts at self-defeat and generally unconcerned with learning from our mistakes. I'm not saying we're born bad, that's a discussion for the next course, uh, but rather we try and often fail, and often work against our own self-interest. We're too easily persuaded by the wrong voices and often fall back on old assumptions rather than rethink them. Now I'm rambling, so back to our regularly scheduled uh, program, Moral Character, and a look at the four main areas, posture, disposition, worldview, and context. Our posture, or stance, is the guiding perspective that functions as a lens through which we view life. It is a foundational point of view that affects the way we perceive the world around us. One example is glass half empty or glass half full. For some, the world is a fearsome place where others must earn our trust before we open ourselves to them. For others, people are basically good and deserve our trust until they fail us in some way. Another example would be the people who can point to things around them as a foretaste of heaven or people who perceive this as hell on earth. For Terry Anderson, uh, the appropriate stance for a believer is doxology, praise and thanksgiving. And he quotes from Charles Wesley's hymn, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. Again, I'm not going to sing it. Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, Joy of Heaven to Earth Come Down, Fix in Us Thy Humble Dwelling, All Thy Faithful Mercies Crown. Jesus, Thou art all compassion, pure, unbounded love Thou art. Visit us with thy salvation, enter every trembling heart. Thee we would be always blessing, serve thee as thy host above, pray and praise thee without ceasing, glory in thy perfect love. Surprising, or perhaps not, that this hymn keeps reappearing. The assumption here is that loyalty to Jesus Christ and the experience of personal transformation available through him will result in a new perspective, an abiding sense that God loves and forgives us and that we are all children of God. We'll look at this more closely when we examine worldview. So a quick question then. How do you develop an open posture, one filled with thankfulness and praise? Pause here if you wish. Next is disposition a persistent tendency, according to Anderson, or a stable readiness to speak and act in a certain manner. I feel like we've nearly said enough about disposition, but there's always room for a wee bit more. Some describe disposition as habits of the heart that will manifest themselves in the way we act, for example, generously or selfishly. No doubt you've heard about the seven deadly sins and the four cardinal virtues. They live under the same general heading of disposition. So let's take a brief 
detour to look at the four cardinal virtues and biblical sources to continue to develop a picture of the virtuous life. They are prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. Here's what they mean. Prudence essentially means making choices or following one's conscience. Justice seeks to live out the command to love your neighbor and pursue the common good. Fortitude means constancy in the pursuit of good, and temperance is the moderation of human desire. These are all from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Why are these important? Well, there are countless scriptural guides to human behavior, and frameworks like the four cardinal virtues distill these guides and add a little structure. So, Uh, Here's an example from St. Paul, found in the fifth chapter of Galatians. He wrote, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. The assumption here is that virtue will build your relationship with God, and vice will diminish your relationship with God. Now, we can debate these point by point, and we can certainly ponder the question of whether those who fall into sin can eventually find their way to the kingdom. I vote yes. Uh, But we will likely never find a better description of the habits of the heart that strengthen character, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Closely related to posture or stance, uh, worldview is our basic operative understanding of reality. While stance is a guiding perspective, worldview defines our fundamental beliefs such as redemption is possible or death is never the final word. Your worldview, then, will inform and affect your actions. Anderson cites the example of Latin American liberation theology. If you believe that God has a unique regard or a preferential option for the poor, then you will pursue a course of action that supports this belief. Central United Church, the church I retired from, has been engaged in the community for many years, feeding the hungry, advocating for proper housing, providing housing for seniors, providing harm reduction services, clean needles, crack kits, and condoms. All of these services demonstrate a heart for the vulnerable, for those we tend to ignore or to blame for their own troubles. So we've considered a positive example of worldview, 
the preferential option for the poor. So what about a negative example? Uh, This one comes from the late Gregory Baum as false consciousness. A victim of false consciousness will be socialized to believe that the actions or values of their group are good. They therefore freely, if unconsciously, cooperate and go along with the structured injustices of a particular group or society. Can you think of an example? Nazi Germany, of course, springs to mind with the commonly held belief that Jewish people were the cause of their various ills. Uh, Gregory Baum, of course, understood this firsthand. Uh, Born of a Jewish mother and a Christian father, they were forced to flee Germany and seek refuge in Canada. He became a priest in the late 1940s and dedicated his life to promoting understanding between Christians and Jews, in essence, the story of his existence. I'll leave it to you to ponder contemporary examples. Suffice it to say that the desire to scapegoat others, the desire to distort the facts to further an agenda, the desire to incite hatred or violence, these desires never go away. They simply resurface in new forms. Finally, to understand what is truly happening in a given situation means that we're mindful of context. A wealthy teenager steals some cosmetics. A starving person steals a loaf of bread. The moral violation is called theft, but the context for the crime is different. So context allows us to see the big picture, to understand how things develop and why they continue. It means uh, doing your homework and discovering the why beneath any given situation. At school, uh, we used to try to create universal rules, things we could apply to each course that we took. Maybe we had a little too much time on our hands. Um, Nevertheless, the one aphorism that seemed to fit every discussion was, context is everything. So here are some dimensions of context, basically the, the start of a list. The first would be facts and information. This would include both undisputed information and the view of experts. Understanding the facts and finding proper information will allow us to move through this seeming post-truth era that we inhabit. Then there's social analysis. This is a look at the patterns and underlying factors in a given situation. In episode 9, I shared the 1986 apology to indigenous peoples, which was the starting point for an attempt to right a series of wrongs. The text of the apology contains social analysis, describing the mindset and the acts that led to so much suffering. And lastly, uh, significance. Anderson calls this the signs of the times. So we take a trend and try to understand it from a variety of angles. Uh, One example is the decline in university enrollment here in the U.S. From uh, 2011 to 2020, there was an 11% drop in enrollment, and that's pre-COVID, which has only accelerated the trend. So we ask why. Some have suggested a decline in the economy in the period as a factor, perhaps uh, just a return to normal levels after a few years of growth in enrollment. Could it be simple demographics with 
birth rates declining or has the cost of education become too high? Are people finally recognizing the limitations of a four-year degree and opting for obtaining a trade instead? Universities are on the front lines of the culture war here in the States. Could that be a reason? To sum up, understanding context is critical to intentional living, developing a moral character. Looking back to our first episode on ethics, uh, we face ethical decisions every day, and developing a moral character will make it easier to navigate the world we inhabit. Next week, we're going to begin our look at systematic theology, uh, what we believe and why we believe it. I'm excited, and I hope you are too. Uh, Don't forget the website at p2.ca slash podcast, and leave a review at Apple or Google if you feel moved to do so. Thanks for listening.